Welcome to another SayNoKNOW.org podcast. We discuss all things drug-related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chris and Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash say no org or tweet us at say no org. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Say No podcast, our drug education project. I'm here today talking with a good friend of mine, Keith, and uh, Keith and I know each other professionally and our lives did once cross back in the policing days, but uh Keith uh, now spends a lot of time doing community outreach work in the city of Saskatoon. So thanks a lot for uh, taking your time with us, Keith. Hey. Hi. <laughs> so, so Keith, uh, I, I asked you to do this because I know that you have some significant information and experience in the methamphetamine scene, both what it was back in the day to kind of what I would consider an epidemic today. Can you kind of give me some, some brief history and, and some experience that you have there? Well, I myself gravitated to the meth because all through high school, I was very, uh, I operated on sleep deprivation. Okay. Like, uh, so I didn't do very well in school, but, but all through school, I would sleep like two, three hours a night. So when I found a drug that kept me up for days on end, I, I was like, this is it. This is the one. That's the I one. I found drug. the one and it was over. And I didn't care about any of the side effects either, right? Like, Oh yeah, my lips are chapped and my teeth are falling out. Like none of that matters. Wow. <laughs> right? Staying awake and being productive right. was all that really counted. So were you using meth in high school? No, no. Oh. That's just where my I gravitated from that. Like, oh, gotcha. And then as soon as I found the meth, it was like I was mid maybe my mid twenties, maybe. Okay. Um from high school, doing a lot of acid and doing all that kind of stuff, drinking all the time. Then I found the party scene. So in around like 99, I was like raving, okay, doing rave drugs. Rave scene. Yeah. And then through the rave scene, I found meth. Gotcha. And then, uh, then it was just over. There was, there was just the meth. Like sell cocaine just to, to cover the cost of whatever I flailed through on meth, right? Like, wow. So that was, that was my MO for a long time. The meth scene back then, it started real small and then it, it just branched out real quick, like meth does, right? right. Like it becomes a, an epidemic. It comes citywide, right? Um, so, what what was the environment when you when you were first exposed to it? Was it just at a party, at a rave? Someone had it. Uh, my coke dealer was like, "Here, oh, here here's an ounce of here's an ounce of meth." Oh, because at that time you were just selling. I was, I was just selling pills and coke and whatever yeah. happened to be around and the party drugs, right? Yeah. And he said, "Here, here's an ounce of meth," and I was like, "What is this?" And he said, "This is how you do it." Just don't do it until you've sold it. Oh. And I was like, oh, okay. And Because you wanted oh, to make sure you sold the whole ounce yeah, before yeah, totally. you. <laughs> and the, the whole party scene was like wired on it within a week, right? Oh, wow. Like the entire Saskatoon rave scene was just 
we were just fucked. So what year would this have been roughly? <sighs> I don't know, probably early 2000s, late, okay. late 90s, early 2000s, right in that area, right. that era. Time is really a, a difficult thing for me to place back. Right. So basically, once I got out of the party scene and I was just in the meth scene, my typical day for like the longest time would basically be I would wake up from whatever stupor or wherever I fell asleep. I would go, I'd get whatever meth I needed if I didn't have any, because often what had happened is you would fall asleep and lose everything you ever owned and you'd wake up and then you'd start rebuilding. Oh yeah. Right? Like you'd wake, you'd wake up with nothing but the clothes you're wearing. You go out and you find what you can of what you had and then you go and you get new stuff, right? And just keep accumulating yeah, just every keep, day, losing. Just keep going and then as soon as you fall asleep, lose everything you own, start over again. Is that because your friends are taking it from Yeah, yeah. They're just yeah. like, oh, opportunistic, gone, right? So like basically I used to sum it up to the first 48 hours of being awake was like the morning. Okay. Right? Like up until about lunch basically yeah because by that time you're hungry and you're, you get high eat some food and then you're high again so you're you're good to go the next two days is like your afternoon yeah and then the next two days after that would be like the evening span of wow. the day so like in a week i remember i remember one october i slept twice oh my god man and, and once was like for like 12 hours and the other time was like 23 hours and then other than that, I was just up and my dog got lost and my, all my stuff got lost. And I was, oh man. <laughs> so are you smoking every day, snorting or I was, shooting? I was, I was never much for shooting. Yeah. I tried to gravitate away from injection drug use Yeah, because I knew I would like it too much. Oh, okay. So uh, I, I snorted, I would eat it. I remember I would go into 7-Eleven on Broadway every day, get a coffee, pour, free pour meth into my coffee. Jeez. Until one day the manager caught me and was like, you're banned for life. <laughs> for and so I was long. like, yeah, whatever. And I just come back the next day and do the same thing. Right. Like, you know, what's crazy, man. The first time I heard about meth coffee was two days ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. We used to call it Moffy. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, totally. That's, it was a thing for a long time. Yeah. I was talking to a source who's, who's all ganged up the other day, like a confidential informant and he's super violent. He was just, we were just talking about the meth scene and he, when he got out of jail and he kind of went, went to some he was doing some gang type work if you want to call it that and he uh he said that um he wasn't planning on doing anything with these guys he had just got out of jail he wasn't really gonna like start doing any of their violent crimes for the for the group again or like take anyone hostage or anything and then he said uh they asked him if he wanted some meth coffee and he's like mm, no thanks and the coffee cup was sitting there and and they started drinking alcohol he just turned because like, it was a cup there and he just took a big chug and they're like whoa that was a lot and he's like what do you mean? They're like, that's the meth coffee we're just telling you about. And he's like, oh no. And he's like, and it was just uh, on from there. And he said, then they went out and did a lot of violent shit. So yeah, yeah, that's the first time I'd ever heard of someone mixing coffee with. Yeah, it was meth. really common back in the day. Oh wow. Um, we we do it all the time because it was discreet, right? Right. It's really hard on your teeth though. Oh, I bet. Right, because anything with the smoking or the, you know, the snorting, anything like that is really hard on your nasals passages, your teeth, your tongue dries out feels like there's glass shards which probably perpetrates that whole meth myth that like oh there's shards coming out yep. of my tongue right? right right i remember the the first ounce i got i was smoking some and and the guy who gave it to me was like 
you know that's gonna give you chap lips and i look i remember looking at him and smiling and he's like oh too late <laughs> oh, okay. no, already? no i just my lips were super dry and i oh. like it was pretty funny. He was just like shook his head and walked away. Oh, man. Said <laughs> mumbled something about, you better have my money. <laughs> so was this like a, a local drug dealer? Or is this someone that would have traveled from out of town? It, it was a local, yeah. And so was so at that time, was selling meth big or was this kind of the start? No, that, of- was, that was like the, it was pretty unheard of before that for me in my circles. Like nobody was like, oh, yeah, totally. The rare drugs that we would find would be like, you know, they're, Every now and then PCP would come through oh, really? or like the odd time we got mescaline, you know, there's just like th- those would come every sporadically, like someone would go on a trip and bring some back. Oh, okay. Right? Just some novelty. But, drug, uh, but that, that's kind of how the meth was. It just like, oh, well, we, we don't have as much Coke as you want. So here we're going to give you some meth. Right. And then it just never went away. What's uh mescaline? Mescaline. It's like, um, it's almost like peyote. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Kind of like the French call type. masculine, they call their PCP masculine. So PCP is like a synthetic, synthetic of yeah. masculine. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That's yeah, like a really strandy root kind of. Oh, okay. Super fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just has some terrible side effects from it. No, it was actually really, really good. Clean. It was like doing real good acid, actually. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. That was my favorite back in the day, like doing the acid. Yeah. And if I miss, if I was going to be honest and I miss one drug, it would probably be the acid. Really? Yeah. It seems like there's a bit of an insurgence, uh, insurgence of acid again, but I mean, it's, it's not a drug that you see like major addiction issues no. necessarily. There are the odd cases that, that I know where there's like some psychological effects from it. Where oh yeah. Guys yeah. are stuck on permanent trips, but. Well, uh, like there was, there was one you... chemist, he made these like Jerry Garcia's they were called. Yeah. And there was super, like there was a ton of them back in the day. And like I'm immune to them. Really? Like I it didn't do anything. I I could eat them now, and it would not phase me. Really? Like my body just doesn't react. I ate so many of them. Oh, that's right. Why. Like I just I would eat 10, 15 of them at a time. Oh yeah. And everyone would eat one and be high, and I'd be like, uh, I need to eat ten more. Oh like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> is that just because you do build up that tolerance? So yeah. Fast? Like your body is just like. Well, they say, oh, you're not supposed to do it two days in a row, and I'm like, whatever. Yeah. You're I'll just, just I'll everything. just eat more. <laughs> wow. But so that, what was that's the, kind of a side topic. Yeah, that's a side topic. <laughs> what was it? What was just uh, another side topic? What, so what was the desire to just be drugged out all the time back then? Like I know you mentioned through, the- through my teen, teen years, I was really angry, and then I kind of like got away from the anger, but there's still a lot of self loathing and okay, and like just didn't care. Okay, um, I remember being young and being like. I idolized Sid Vicious, right? Oh, yeah. He went out like a shit show yeah, yeah. at the age of like, what, 24 or something, kind of right? Rock and roll type yeah. Of and that's yeah. kind of, I was aspiring to that. Okay. And then next thing I knew, I was in my 30s and then I was like 40. Like, gotcha. I kind of failed at that, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was my original like goal as a teenager. I was going to just drive myself into oblivion and then, you know, okay. be done, right? Wow. That's, so, pre- that's pretty sad. Yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, it's really sad. <laughs> Looking back on it, I'm, I just kind of shake my head. Like, oh. yeah, like it came out of a place of almost like low self esteem, not respecting yourself enough to yeah. contribute to life rather than. Well, uh, yeah, and like there was there was a lot of trauma in my childhood. Okay, that I carried with me and just didn't know how to deal with. So that, like many other people who have addictions, like right. that, that fed it. Right. It's a common it's a common thread among <laughs> conversations I'm having with with people in the scene for sure is 
that child childhood trauma or some sort of neglect or yeah or something like there, that. There, there's usually something there's at, usually at something. the root of it right have you noticed that also in your professional uh like Absolutely. now that you're working with these yeah. with a lot of people that are in recovery or trying to get there yeah through 12-step recovery like that's you end up because you, you do like fours and fives and and you end up with these like everyone has to relive their trauma almost right, right. at some point so how common or uncommon is it then for uh I mean, you're, you're exposed to a lot of circles, both from your own life experience, where they're, you're surrounded by other users in the moment, and you're also now professionally, I mean, you, you're in reco- you've recovered, so you're, you have 12-step experience, I guess. Yeah. And then you also have now street-level experience where you're working with people that are still in the scene today. Yeah. How common or uncommon is it to see, sounds weird to say, but like that fall from grace where it was like this, this individual had everything going for them in life, two loving parents. It came from, is that super uncommon? In my uh, experience, it's very uncommon. But. It's pretty uncommon to, yeah. to fall that far. Yeah. So it, even, it also depends, I think, on uh, the drugs they're doing. Right. Right. You see a lot of that when uh, with cocaine. Oh, yeah. Right. Because they're, they're spoiled rich kids and they can afford cocaine. Right. Right. Whereas most people at the street level can't afford like $100 Something for like cocaine. That. Right. Like, right. That's they're going to gamble that away before they're going to do that. They can get cheaper drugs. Right. Right. Which, so, which kind of like looking back in my mind, like I used to do a lot of acid because it was cheap and right. I got more bang for my buck. Right. Gotcha. So when the meth came around and it was super cheap and I could stay up forever, that was great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because I, I know in our, our push for research based drug policy, one of the biggest fears uh, is along public who doesn't have experience or knowledge in the area is that oh all of a sudden we start we start making access to some of these drugs easier for people who are struggling with addiction and then, oh that means that there's a massive risk increase for my child to become hooked on drugs too and i don't think that's the i case. don't i don't think that's and the there's case, no though. research to suggest it is in fact it's the opposite but you mentioned pricing with cocaine what was the price like in the meth scene back then when you first got into it the first ounce that i got handed he uh he said, everyone's paying 20 a point, sell it for 15, you piss everyone off. Oh, okay. So that's what I did. And then I just kind of like hovered in around there. It's like 10, 15 bucks a point for, oh, yeah. forever. One thing that I've noticed from back in the day to the way it is now, every six months to a year mm-hmm. back in the day, the, the powers that be would dry up the supply lines oh, Okay. for like a couple weeks. Oh. So you just couldn't find any. And it was just long enough to make everyone go to bed, right? And then like the, the hardcores would fight it and fight it and fight it and fight it. And then like they would finally just pass out. And by the time you woke up, there was there was dope again. Oh, I And see. it was good and it was fine. And you'd go back to being uh, anti-productive meth head <laughs> like you would. Yeah. But I don't see that happening anymore. No, there's no drying anything up now. Yeah, like the the gangs and whoever else is like bringing in this cheap, shitty meth that they're doing is they're not they're not taking into account anything to do with the 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 people that are doing it, right? So I guess no. there was like maybe they were just smart drug dealers. Like I remember, like the Aryans used to be they they were smart, right? They don't want yeah. you to die; they want you to keep buying their product, right? Right. So nobody wins from everyone killing each other, right? <laughs> I guess back then the the drug trafficking in that scene would almost be more from what you're describing, almost like entrepreneurial. Yeah. Whereas now it's like everybody meth is so readily available in, in our community that it's like 
everyone's a drug dealer. If you're if you're if you're a user, our, our you're, me- you're messy a nowadays now. is uh, it's almost Americanized. Okay. Um, what do you mean by that? So, in the states, people just go buy cough syrup and do whatever, get their like ingredients, and then they go into their trailer and they make it in their sink or right. wherever, right? And that's really common down there. Here, like back in the day, uh, like I didn't. I was never a cook, even though I was accused of it a few times. Yeah, but I facilitated a couple, and and it was a big process, right? So did you see some cooks back in the day? I've met some cooks, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did Sometimes, you ever see their setup? Yeah, I, yeah. I helped. I like I said, I facilitated a few cooks. Yeah. So we had to buy Pyrex, and we had to do all this, and we had to get all the right gear, and and just make it all happen, right? Yeah. And it was a huge, huge fucking process. Yeah. It paid off, but it was it was it was a big ordeal right and to do it safely and out of the way and and then i've seen some shitty cooking and then i've seen people do it in their sinks like it's just gross right yeah yeah but um this is to the americanized comment so like in around arkansas all of those southern states yeah the meth there is all very like backwoods cooked with whatever gotcha wherever yeah um that's what our meth is like now okay the meth that these kids are doing running around with that's yeah. five bucks a point yeah that's that's what they've got so you see a lot of like they do that twitch oh yeah all the time yeah that thing. that's because they're not using good ingredients they're not using right they can't get the ephedrine they can't get this they don't do it properly gotcha. they're cooking it with whatever they've got there was a really good documentary back in the day it was called uh meth mountain okay and it was about the uh, there's like a one mountain in arkansas they, they call meth mountain and it's just cooked labs oh, everywhere I've heard about that right yeah. and then uh they just dump all their shit out and it's a huge environmental catastrophe because yeah. they dump all these chemicals on this mountain and then like all the cops have to fight it and like right it, it's totally worth the watch right that's where we're at now that's basically what we're doing here really yeah from my uh from my experience and knowledge of organized crime world our meth is being imported now yeah so so the the days of like the farmhouse cooks are gone and meth is now coming in but the quality of it is still real quality low. shit yeah yeah i mean it's it's coming in with the, the semi-synthetics like uh all these knockoff pharmaceuticals that are coming in the meth's coming in there too and the reason i mean i've talked to other cops who work out on the coast and uh and that's their theory too because well for one we haven't done no matter how hard no matter how hard the police try we haven't done a massive bust of any like production facilities yeah and then also the quality is so different than what it used to be but yet it's the same that it's got to be coming in with these fake pharmaceuticals from probably china yeah. some of these asian countries where all the fake percocets and everything are coming in and the fake oxycontins coming in that's that's got to be yeah in. for sure and that's the only way you can get the price that low that low because nobody nobody's going to be able to make a lab of their own go through all that effort like you're explaining and then sell it for five bucks a point no that's well and then that's the thing like they the guys who are, are doing it in their sink or whatever they're only getting a ball or a quarter mm-hmm. right like to I, use for them and their yeah, friends and- exactly right like i knew some some crew back in the day and they would they would do it themselves yeah and they had the little recipe and you know they'd make a quarter and yeah. they'd be good for a week or right. two or whatever that however much they used then they'd do it again right, right. i myself I always prefer to, like, I've been to the promised land of Methmonton many times. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there was like, there would be stretches where we would go and we would 
like literally the entire time we were awake was driving back and forth from Edmonton. Jeez. Right. We would hammer down to get there. And then we'd spend like 23 hours coming back. We would cover three different highways and down, down side roads and be like paranoid meth heads. Right. Yeah. And then we would get back and we'd sell what we had left. And then we'd hammer back to Edmonton and pick up again and yeah. off you go. And so back then, the, the people that you were buying off of, was it kind of street level type dealers or were they kind of higher level? Oh, it depends. Organized depends. Sometimes you'd or? get lucky and you'd get someone who's good. And then sometimes you'd just get like the shoplifter and you'd give them a bunch of money. I remember giving a shoplifter. Girls like, I'm a shoplifter. And we were like, oh yeah. And she, we gave her like several thousand dollars. Yeah. Like here, go get us some dope. And she f- fucked off in a cab. And we were like, well, I hope she comes back. <laughs> and she did. Oh, she did? Yeah, she oh, was wow. totally like, she was like, yeah, I'm a shoplifter. I'm not a fucking drug dealer or a thief. Like, yeah. I'll be back. She came back, brought us dope. We were oh, good. Wow. Like, <laughs> there you go. Sometimes you like roll the dice. Sometimes it doesn't pay off. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, more more times than not, probably. It was surprising. Uh, there was like a whole undercurrent of, in the punk rock scene in the, in Alberta that the meth was really common. Is that right? Yeah. Eh? More than like the rave scenes and like, whatnot in Alberta it was it was the punk rock it was scene. kind of the punk scene they were using it yeah that's a different user user group than now like now it's the real down and out it's like I mean back in the day meth I remember you know during training courses and talking to people like you know meth traditionally was a drug abused by working class truck drivers so they could yeah, stay yeah. awake stay on awake, the roads yeah. you know like you said the rave guys that wanted to party all night all I, night I remember parties. way back um Somebody was like, oh, I've been doing meth, but like my parents and my grandparents don't even know what meth is. And I was like, tell them it's trucker speed. Yeah. Exactly. So they went back and they were like, Grandma, do you know what trucker speed is? And she's like, oh, yeah. Everyone <laughs> exactly. knows what trucker speed is, yeah, right? Because exactly. like, it was around in the 60s, right? Oh, yeah, totally. It was just, yeah. it was like bikers, truckers, and Japanese kamikaze pilots. Yeah, like, exactly. That's who, that's who was like the right. meth people. Right. Yeah. And now it, and, you know, I'm not even seeing it as like a party drug anymore. It doesn't no. seem like there, there's just, no it's party. Hitting rock, it's hitting rock bottom. Like it's it's our down and outs. It's our low level gang members. It's yeah, anyone who can get their their hands on it because their life sucks ass. Seems to be the people that are using it now. And it's all injection too. Yeah, like very rare. Like I deal with a lot of like street level outreach and and it's all injection. Yeah, like in the last month, I think I maybe seen two pipes. Right. Whereas like on an average morning when I clean out the building I work in anywhere from five to 15 rigs, just throwing around. Oh, geez. Right. So we're collecting stats to try and push for like the safe injection thing. Right. 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 Well, that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and I want this to be one of our first episodes. If I think it probably will end up being the first episode when we're done, mainly because there's the opioid epidemic that everybody talks about. It's it's uh, it's popular um, is for for research groups to spend some time and energy on because people are dying from it. Mm-hmm. It's it's obvious. It's in your face. There's easy statistics to collect. Like oh, in BC right now, there's three people every day dying, and so obviously we need to step up and do something. Meth. It's not so obvious. You know the link isn't so obvious. So I I really wanted to kick this off with some meth information because it isn't unique to Saskatoon, British Columbia. It's their hidden secret too. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're all their attention and focus is on, on heroin. Before, before the, the meth became like prevalent on its own here. Yeah. All of our cocaine was cut with meth for like ever, like all of it would just always come 
if it was Asian Coke, it smelled like diesel, still had meth in it. And if yeah. it wasn't Asian Coke, then it didn't smell like diesel, but it still had meth in it. And then the meth got more expensive. So then they had to cut it with other stuff. Gotcha. So that then the meth came on its own, right? I, I don't know what the, the turning point there was. I don't know if it was something happened on the coast where they I were like, so. well, let's just start doing the meth by itself, right? Like our, our cocaine's always been shit and it's still shit. Yeah. And, and like people just do it and they don't even know what cocaine's supposed to be like. Right. The, I, like, I, I hate to see what they're doing now, right? Like this whole fentanyl laced cocaine oh, stuff. Oh, I know. Like, that's, that's bizarre. Like, do they don't even understand what high they're going after, right? Like, right. In Saskatoon here over the weekend of like March 10th, we had some some deaths related to cocaine-laced fentanyl. So that's what, uh, that's what Keith's referring to. And uh, we haven't seen that before necessarily. And it doesn't make much sense from a drug cop perspective and understanding the community because the guys, some of the people that, that unfortunately were deceased, I mean, these are people just ordering coke. These were like family people that yeah. decided they wanted to go and party on the weekend and probably bump a line of coke in the bathroom sort of thing. And then all of a sudden they're dropping dead because it was laced with fentanyl. I mean, that, that, that's kind of a, that's kind of a darker level of, uh, that I don't like, like that's, yeah. that's like, we're getting to the point to me where you're, I don't know, there's something, there's something even worse than I know we're, it's funny to talk about an ethical drug dealer, but there's something really extra unethical about someone yeah. that's giving their client what they're not asking for and knowing, and no, knowing, knowing, that, knowing or, or not knowing, which is yeah, even or, more, and they might is even more dangerous. Right. 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 Um, I sold drugs for a long time and I always, I always tried to know what I had. Right. Right. And then I always tried to be upfront about it too. Right. Like, Oh, how are your pills? They're dirty. Like you want to do them or not. Right. Right. This is how much they are. I remember like, uh, we were talking earlier and I was telling you about the, the MSM or whatever. Right. Right. Um, which is like a arthritis joint pain like you can just buy it on the shelf next to next to the echinacea okay right you take it out of the caps you melt it down and it makes the prettiest shard you've ever seen i went around i remember i had some like weird edmonton shale yeah which edmonton was notorious for their meth never came in like big shards it was always very like grainy yeah um i don't know if that's just the way it always was it was fine it was kind of a weird yellow color and and almost like gravel it almost looked like a between snow and gravel oh um we just call it shale yeah so i went around and i was like which would you rather have and everyone of course was like i want that pretty shard i'm like there's no meth in it yeah (laughs) here have this really good meth that doesn't look so pretty yeah right but then unfortunately i think what i did in trying to educate people is then people started just cooking it into their meth oh more right than what was happening previously so this stuff is really good for you if you eat it that's fine but if you start smoking it, it makes your teeth like the fall. medication you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. It makes your teeth fall out, and your skin gets greasy, and like yeah. <laughs> so everyone is running hill. around with like greasy faces and and shitty teeth, right? Well, we had a for a while there, and I think still we're starting to we're, we still see this every time we seize uh, coke or whatever any drug on the street, and we send it off to Health Canada, then we get a we get a certificate of analysis called back, and it'll detail like what's in yeah. the drug, and then what what part of the drug is a controlled substance. So we can usually see what it's cut with. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we can. For a long time, I remember we did a present, I did a presentation back when I was in the drug section to like a hospital ER staff or something like that. And there was, uh, they were just asking, hey, we're starting to see people come in that are, that 
are in the crack scene. They're, they're, we know they're crack users and they've got these weird rashes on their face and stuff. And so it's like, okay, well, I'll take it back to the community and see what, what I find out. So I started asking some, some of the uh, crack users I knew and, and they said, oh, that's, that's a levamisol laced uh, crack. So levamisol is like a pig deworm or whatever. Yeah. And then the drug dealers found out that it's because obviously people will choose crack over Coke. They're trying to cook the impurities out. So they turn it from a powder to yeah. acid to a base. So it's hard. They can smoke it. The idea is to. To maintain the size and the consistency. Yeah, so the people size. don't feel like they're getting shafted. Yeah, right? exactly. And so now. Turning a gram into 0.3. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now, or so then, so what they were doing then is they were, cut, they someone found out somewhere that levamisol cooks up into crack so the impurities don't come out where other additives yeah, yeah. would dissolve away when you're in the cooking process well levamisol didn't and so then that gave this weird rash on people's face so it's kind of similar it reminds similar, me of yeah. what you were talking about with that arthritic medication yeah looking at meth i'd never heard that before yeah and for, unfortunately like after that came to light like it was hard to find meth that didn't have it right right like it got really bad Everybody, like everyone wanted to make an extra buck or extra, extra half point, right? Yeah. So they would take a point, they'd keep half and they'd put a half of buff in there and it'd right. be like, oh, right. You could, yeah. But you could tell right away. And like, I don't know why everyone thought they were fooling anyone. As soon as you hit it with the fire, it would like climb up the bowl. Oh yeah. Away from the flame. Whereas meth would just melt and, and melt in. kind of sizzle a little, right? Okay. So I don't know why they thought it was like. Well, by that time, Not they already made their money. They yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> they're, they were already high and they don't give a fuck, right? Yeah. So, okay, you kind of transition from the party scene using meth to, you know, like you said, where you're passing out for, or you're up for days at a time. and you uh, pass At, out at the end of the gone. party scene, I kind of, I transitioned to just being homeless. Okay. Uh, I was, I never had a fixed address. I just sort of floated around. It got more expensive in the long run because by the time you like, when you got meth, you can find somewhere to go for three days before anyone's like, Hey, you should just go away. Right? right. Like, Oh, I got, I got drugs and they'll let you in. Right. Right. So it was easy to just float around and you just like, I guess now they would be equivalent would be like trapping out someone's house. Right. Right. So it was kind of the same thing, but not really so excessive. Right. What's um, trapping out someone's house for our listeners. Um, basically like you just you don't have any boundaries and the drug dealers just kind of push their way in and yep. just set up shop right it was basically what we would do right right um so you're selling you're just going to sell out of someone's house or crash in someone's house. yeah exactly um now it seems like they just sort of do it and you don't have a choice no there's um, no choice now back back in the day like we were we were polite about it right like we would make sure you were high like you were good you'd have smokes and lottery yeah. tickets and you know like we'd spend a lot of money to to hang out and use your house right right, right. so it was it, we were a little more polite than than the current and traps the current, <laughs> yeah, the current trap houses that are all gang members with their guns and machetes yeah exactly right the scene wasn't nearly as violent as it is now i don't know if that's just due to the gangs or or what like like there was there was violence and there was beatings and there was all all of that but it wasn't as every day well it wasn't it wasn't the same population using no so now there's a population that's using that literally had never touched meth, probably because they couldn't afford it. But now that it's so cheap, it is the drug of choice for every gang member. Yeah. Every child that's been neglected and raised by their peers instead of their parents is using meth in, on the streets. I, I remember it was uh, would have been August of 2006. I had a really bad month. <laughs> so I got arrested with a bunch of dope on me. Yeah. 
Um, I got set up actually. Somebody was trying to get someone off of their charges or whatever. Oh yeah. So I ended up, uh, Robbie ended up arresting me. It was my first encounter with officer Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I ended up with all these charges that were leading up to a pen bit. My roommate robbed me of like a whole bunch of money. And then this one junkie who always had a, like a beef against me, but had been like following me around trying to cuff points off me. Yeah. So I cuffed him a couple. So he'd go away. And then he came around and there was like nothing around. And I was kind of waiting and yeah. he was like, oh, you're holding out. And I was like, whatever. He actually like attacked me with a hatchet and oh, nearly man. killed me. Um, over the fact that he thought I was holding out on him. Oh, geez. Uh, the irony is I was holding out on him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was, uh, I was just telling that story the other day, actually. I have this huge scar on my head. Oh yeah. Yeah. From when he, Jeez, that's when from he the yeah. When he came after me. Oh boy. What, one of the places where I work, the waitress was like, Oh, look at your haircut. She thought I had a hair tattoo and I was like, no, no, that's a big she scar. Thought you were getting yeah. like a nice, uh. What do they call the? What do they call those lines on a haircut? Yeah, a nice yeah. straight line. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, no, this was staples, and like, I was on the trauma table for quite a long time, actually. Oh boy. So I, I don't know when when you're doing meth, like the violence, it just it's just part of the day, right? Like I remember I got bottled right here, my face was all busted open, the yeah. scar. I, I got lucky. There was a neurosurgeon who was working in the ER that day. Oh, wow. He stitched me up real good. So I like, unless I get a sunburn, you don't actually yeah, you see, like you really can't tell. see, but this whole part of my face was split open. Wow. Um, but you know, that you just go on. Right. The next day is whatever happens next, right? Yeah. Someone attacks you with a hatchet, you heal, you go on, right? You go on. At no point is this like the you just, bottom. You just lower your standards as fast as the bottom drops out. Right. Right. So your rock bottom gets lower and lower the more yeah. shit that happens to you. The more the more you see, the more that happens, the the more you're just kind of numb to it. Right. So then what was the kind of TSN turning point then that uh for me I was in a really dysfunctional relationship. I'd had a kid yeah. and uh she her mother had took her and I didn't have any contact and oh man and I was just I was super miserable. So I've been in and out of recovery, like I was in recovery and then out of career and then in recovery and then in this Cho- choosing to go yourself into recovery and out or um, court ordered or the, what? The la- well, I was trying. I was like You're I got out of I got out of the pen and I was like, Oh, I'm gonna try and be clean. Okay. Right. Um this is I go do it for my parole. Right. Which I failed. Yeah. Right. I ended up Most back do. in the pen yeah. and you know, and then I got out and people would come and pick me up and take me to meetings and I would go and I'd be good for, I don't know, like 40, 50, 60 days. Yeah. And then I'd go out for a weekend and then I'd come back and I'd do another 30, 40, 60. I remember I got 87, 89, 91. And then that was like, as far as I could get. Was oh, 91 yeah. Like days 91 days. That. And yeah. then I'd go get high. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the alternatives to violence program and I was having all kinds of issues and, and I finally had had enough. I just, but I was so, and this is where the system is so flawed. I was so broken and so helpless that I couldn't help myself to get into a treatment center or do any of the process. And then they just make it an uphill battle. Right. To try to right? get in. Like uh, I took the courses at addiction services and they were like, okay, you're going to do this. And I'm like, okay. I had to show up for a meeting at three o'clock even though I'd done the meeting six months earlier 
I had to show up for this meeting. I said, okay, fine. I made it at three minutes after three. Yeah. First time I've been on time for anything in a decade. Right. Right. In my mind. Yeah. They made me wait 10 minutes in the lobby and then they were like, no, you have to come back another time. And I'm like, oh, well, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This so, is hard. This is hard for. So, like, all the people who are stuck in addiction, even if they want to get help, it's such a flawed system to get them into. Like, yeah, we need to break down those barriers. Absolutely. Barrier, like, barrier to entry is something that is talked about on a national level. It, it, um, it's it's atrocious trying to get them in. Yeah. And then like the treatment centers are overwhelmed. Totally. Like I get it, but yeah. but you, there's got to be a more conducive way to get someone from point A to point B. Yeah. It, it's Without it's, expecting yeah. them to be clean for seven months well, while they wait. Yeah. It's, it's the idea of meeting someone where they're at. Versus Absolutely. versus trying to bring them to where you're at. The, the opportunistic, right? Like, yeah. If they want to go into detox today, then we should do everything to get them into that detox today, like right now. Because three moment. days from now, they're going to be high, and they're yeah. they, they're not going to think the same, right? Yeah. yeah, we need we need resources available. So because that that day when that person has that kind of realization might not come again ever. Yeah. So if we can snap them up from the when as soon as that last word leads their lips, saying "I'm ready to go today," we can grab a hold of them. And take them, yeah. then that's probably. I was in my my late mid thirties before I even had thought about going to fucking detox or. Really? Yeah, like that long. It, it never occurred to me. Wow. I remember. So this guy I went to high school with and did a lot of acid with, and he always came went. Um, he came to town, and he shot up a bunch of meth, did a bunch of acid, and then he just never went away. Like he didn't go back on the road. He just stayed just and did math and like dumpster dove and like, yeah, he was just, he was there and he was yeah. part of my life. And, and we're, we're still, we're still tight to this day. We like go camping once a year, every year we go to festivals and we Is do. Is he things. sober too? No? He, he's sober. Yeah. He's been sober for, I don't know, over 10 years. Oh, wow. But so, and this is, this is how like kind of bent and in my, involved in my world I was. I remember going to jail for 60 days. I got out and I was like, where's buddy? And everyone went, oh, he's gone. And nobody could tell me where he went. Mm-hmm. So then like, I asked a friend of ours and I was like, well, where is he? Like enough of this, like he's gone. Where is he? And she was like, well, he went and got clean. Oh, and I remember joking and being like, oh, so he had a shower finally. Oh, <laughs> right. Because yeah, because nobody of- I knew had ever gone and got clean. Like made it out of the scene. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. this was unheard of. And she actually had to sit me down and explain to me that like he quit doing drugs and he went to this and he moved away and he's going to NA and wow. and he can't come and see us. And and I just I didn't comprehend it. So when I got out of the, the pen, I was he was the first call I made. I was like, dude, like what's going on? Yeah. Right. So that I think is a very common occurrence. Like uh, I think people get sent to treatment centers and stuff, but like they don't understand that you can. Yeah, make it out right. Like, I didn't. I sure as hell didn't. I had no no idea that people could stop doing meth and just walk away. And you'd never seen it. Never seen it. Yeah. It was unheard of. People disappeared, but that was that, right? Right. So, so going back to kind of, uh, I'd ask like, what's your what was what was that moment in your life where where you decided like, I'm going to give it a real effort and actually clean up my life instead of just continuing down this path that you were in like the the breaking point for me and the 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 real big realization for me was uh so this lady at a at alternatives to violence 
my counselor there. She pulled all these strings, got me into to treatment, arranged the detox, did all the things that addiction services should do, yeah, but didn't. She pulled all kinds of strings. I don't even I I seen her when I was one year clean and I was just like, thank you very much for whatever you did. Like, wow. I remember emailing her and being like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm total waste. Like I'll make it to my physical this time. I promise. Yeah. Right. Like just begging her not to give up. I remember being 13 and a half hours late for detox and they're like, have you been using? And I was like, of course I've been using yeah. <laughs> like, what do you think? Like, so I was scheduled to go detox through the Larson house here in town and yeah. then go straight to Calder center. And then I thought, no, no, I'm going to go home. I'm going to see my girlfriend. Everything's going to be good. I remember leaving the Larson house. I made it. I was never going to use again yeah. when I left. I made it five blocks and I got high. And that was the last time I got high. That was the, the breaking point where I was like, okay, I really have no control of this. Right. Right. So that, that was the turning point for me. Right. <laughs> right. And I don't know, like, I feel like, Often, a lot of the people who are addicted these days, like they might have that turning point, but then they don't have anywhere to go. Like I was fortunate, my turning point. The next morning, I was going into treatment. Yeah, right. So I could just go with it. I went into treatment. I was a homeless meth head, and I came out, and I was just homeless. Right. Right. So I always tell everyone, like, it's okay. You can still make it. Yeah. Right. Like your situation will change. Yeah. Good for you, man, to share that life experience with people. They need to hear that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I mean, it's one thing for a professional to tell, to tell someone you can make it and you can make it out, but it's, it seems like such a pipe dream, like you said. Yeah. Like, Well, you can't just, a lot of times, and I find this a lot with the people I work with these days, like they just won't listen to you because you had an education. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, I'm very successful at what I've been doing solely because I been training for 30 plus years exactly. to be doing it exactly. right um i work with a lot of doctors and nurses and social workers and people who are really good at their jobs yeah. but they just don't have that that well, you're edge, the expert right yeah, like, you're the expert you're, like the stuff that they're reading about is your yeah. life yeah i think l- that lived experience proponent as part of recovery and we're starting to see more like user groups um act as sort of lobbyists or if you want to call them that or, or at least support groups or and talking discussing with policymakers i know with us yeah. saying no a lot of our people with lived experience we're consulting with researchers all the time in the places that i work amongst like uh i work in the hiv field now yeah and uh we have in saskatoon we, it's called the hiv collective like we have a lot of peer peer we have peer mentors peer support right and, and that's basically how i i fit in right i'm, right. I'm in that proponent of it yeah that's that's good i was talking to one uh one researcher and who part of the canadian research initiative of substance misuse and and they they're a great organization that kind of has been funded to field research projects and initiatives in in this area and prairie's prairie chrism is funding this podcast for example mm-hmm. but uh when we were at a at a conference in calgary in the in the fall they I was talking to a researcher there and and she did some studies on peer-based recovery. And she said, you could never, and this was just one opinion, obviously, based on the research is it's important to have the lived experience, but it's also important to have open-minded people without lived experience also involved in those circles Mm -hmm. for the key reason is a lot of people, you're different 
very different than uh, than some of the other people I've talked to. But a, pe- a lot of people with lived experience can be a little more conservative than you would think in their ideals because yeah. almost some of them come from a place where it's like, well, I made it out. Yeah. You then you can make it out. And and uh, sometimes there, the empathy piece is actually you would think it would be the people larger. the people in the twelve step really struggle with the harm reduction. Yeah, like, I know that's it's fascinating. Like, it's to like me. a it's a huge barrier for them. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. I know a gentleman, he's uh, trying to start, it's called Saskatoon Cares. It's like okay. a needle exchange kind of program. Okay. Like very like street level. They're just going to yeah. walk around and like, and he keeps asking me to be involved because all of his friends are in 12 step yeah. and none of them want to be involved. And I'm like, I'm the only one who's like, I, I thrive really well in the gray area of yeah. the 12 step recovery, like the medical marijuana, the yeah. the harm reduction, like yeah. abstinence is a flawed, to- flawed concept when completely. it comes to addiction. Completely. Um, it works for some, yeah, and some it's not gonna. Right, it's not ever gonna work. Right, and, but you got to figure that out on your own, right? Yeah, like they have to spend the time and do the work and see what their path is. Yeah, I mean it's 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 socially acceptable for somebody who suffers from depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, a bunch of other mental health um, issues. It's completely acceptable for them to medicate. And work a full time job, mm-hmm. raise families, have their kids. I mean, for us to say that an addiction isn't, it seems it seems flawed to me. It really does. Well, like I have, I have some friends who are on medical marijuana, yeah, and they they've gone and they've taken all of the chemicals out of their life, yeah, and they treat themselves with gummies and and all these things, right? Yeah, good for you. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, if it, if it works, you're not taking some shitty pills that the doctor gave you and you're super well balanced and then yeah. do it. Right. Yeah. And that, that's harm reduction. Yeah. I mean, that, that's and that's example. where the 12 step program really struggles. They're like, what? Yeah. It's just using it as an excuse. But you know, if your motives and you can check yourself and your motives are in the yeah. right place and then do it. Like, yeah. I mean, the, tw- the 12 step program is one of the most uh, prominent and, uh, and like you said, it works for some, it definitely does. I mean, it works. I would suggest for anyone that was was wanting to stop doing a, a drug or whatever to do a set of steps. Right. The, the 12 steps themselves steps are, are absolutely great. outstanding if right. you do them properly. Right. They will, they will change your life. It'll change your perspective. But living the 12 step lifestyle isn't always the right isn't path. It's conducive for everyone, to everybody. That's right. right. Yeah. Which isn't a very popular opinion amongst my friends. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, because well, and it's it's because it's the most famous model, and it's yeah. and it's what we've been. I mean, it's it's either you're a drug addict or you're sober, and that's been kind of the that's kind of been the dialogue that's been preached for decades, and it isn't really solving enough. No, you know, and so that's why now we need to do things different. I mean, I always tell, obviously, a lot of my uh, viewpoints are. I mean, I call I I consider myself right center if we were to draw a line from left to right on the ideals of political scale or whatever i'm right in the middle and it's research-based research-based ideas rather than morality-based ideas Mm -hmm. and so a lot of the people that i work with in law enforcement they a lot of them understand it once you start having a conversation and especially the guys that are open and handle a lot of informants because then they have a personal relationship and connection with with people involved in the community but the but the really the other uh, kind of version of policing where, no, this is a crime and this is wrong, their ideals are 
are coming out of a base of morality. And until you actually explain that to them and show it to them, then you can sometimes you see like a light go off and it's like, oh, wait a sec. Yeah. yeah, like this is this is a moral ideal that's been preached in our society for a long period of time and it's made its way into our laws and it's made its way. It's actually not based in any research. No. And just- so yeah, like research, research, everything should be research-based policy. I wish there was a political party in Canada that said, we're the research-based party. We don't do anything that's popular. We just do something that shows yeah. results based on research. <laughs> if only. If only. I know. <laughs> if only. But I think the only way to sway public opinion as far as the math, math crisis goes, and even, even the opiates, is, uh, is I'd, I'd like to switch some policymakers into, you need to be self, like we need to be selfish as a community because that's the way to sway public opinion in these areas. So, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, in our in our province is fairly conservative. And so, ironically enough, globally, the champions of research-based drug policy globally come out of the the right right more right-leaning governments than the left. Yeah. Cuz the, the left is very much let's love and support these people, and that's great and we and we need to do those things. But that necessarily doesn't get all the votes to go that way. Whereas, where instead, is if you if you're selfish and you're like, wait a sec, my house just got broken into because that guy over there has an addiction. That's not fair. I don't want my house getting broken into because of this guy's problems and this guy's problems are affecting me and my life. Let's put an end to that. And so then, if we get a little selfish, then you start seeing well the easiest road to. I, I honestly, I think the world just needs to start looking at Portugal. Exactly. And they That's, just need to like start studying what Portugal's doing. I think they're way ahead of everyone else in the world. Portugal's ahead, but they haven't turned the problem off and they easily could. Hmm? Because uh Port- but, but they're way ahead of everyone way ahead. else. They're right? way ahead is they're way ahead with opiates, for sure. Like they are way ahead with opiates. The Portugal model is definitely one of the most cutting edge and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's going to have the most success. And, and, but, you know, like it's like any other thing, right? You, you can do the research and there's there's going to be flaws exactly. to anything yep. that you're trying to enact, right? Exactly. So, so I think everyone just needs to start looking at them and going off their, totally. their model and then just start tweaking it to whatever works for them. Right. Right. So, so Portugal had during their real economic downturn, about 1% of their population addicted to opiates, intravenous opiates. So a yeah. massive number of people are slamming needles into their arm. And so what they did is they is they said, we need to do something drastic. And they gave out prescription, prescription heroin to addicts, but then they took all the money that they were using in enforcement and they put it into healthcare. And then also, which I think is one of the most important facets that is probably one of the few one of the least things talked about in the Portugal model is that the government sponsored any business that would hire somebody who's in the government reco- like the government prescription yeah. drug program. They would pay this, that person's salary for the first two years of employment. So now all of a sudden, this person who thought they were worthless has a place in a, in a business. They yeah. meet friends that aren't in the scene. They, they have, have some self-worth. They, have, they self-worth. have all of these things that they never had when they were an addict. Yeah. And... and you're building people up instead yeah. of tearing them down. Like and throw, throwing have, people in jail isn't isn't helping anything. No. They come out, they learn more tricks, they totally get more crime under their belt, right? Totally. They make more connections and then they're right back out on the street. What are they going to do? More yeah. crime. Well, I mean, even I mean Chief Clive Wayhill, he was the Canada's chief for a while while he was while he was Saskatoon's. He was the head of the of the uh, chiefs of police um, across Canada. And he said, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. No. And we can't. No. And that's coming right from the top. So it's being recognized. Um, 
But yeah, I love that Portuguese model of actually paying this person's salary. But the only reason that can happen is because the person has access to a regulated substance that isn't causing them all of the chaos in their life. Yeah. Like yeah. people don't realize like somebody who has a heroin addiction, for example, if they're given a supply that is regulated, it's medicinal grade, they don't need to commit any crimes now. They just- well, well, even like take take it out of the opioids and just look at the moderated drinking programs. Yeah. There's there's been some in Canada that are like super successful. Right. They've taken people who are homeless alcoholics who, who have nothing to the like to the in their world except for booze. Right. They've successfully housed them, got them jobs, you know, they still drink, but they're drinking slowly, right? They're right. mother moderated. Here's here's a little bit of booze to get you through the day so you're not coming down or detoxing or shaking or whatever, right? right. DTs. And and then like these people are turning very successful. Like Montreal's got a great program going, I heard. Right. Um they're doing a pilot in Saskatoon. There, there's a pilot going here. There, yeah, I think I don't think it started yet, but it's going to be starting later this year, I think. There's uh there's a little bit happening downtown right. at, the, at the lighthouse. They have a, a couple rooms that are moderated drinking. Those gentlemen are doing great. Oh, that's good. Well, because they're right. not having to go and drink mouthwash and they're not having yeah, to go and they, drink they, hand they, sanitizer. They're, they're, They've cleaned themselves up. They they shower every day. They keep their rooms clean. Like and they aren't drinking like low row drinking, right? Right. So yeah, because do you do you, when you know where your supply is coming from, you don't have to fight for it. You don't need to yeah. get completely blitzed out of your mind, right? No. Yeah, it's an interesting switch in our in our psychology. Like like previously, they would just like drink because if you pass out, someone's gonna steal your booze, so they'll drink it all. Right. And then they're just super hammered and then they're in the emergency room and they're, you know, yeah, they're bogging down cost. the system. And it's like, there's so many upsides to it, but getting it past the politicians is the. Uh, yeah. But see, and again, that's why I think a lot of the right has been, has been the champion because it comes down to economics. It's, it's yeah. At the end result, I mean, yeah, we are providing more care to this individual, but the focus is actually economics. Yeah. It's simple. Well, and you, you might be giving more care to that individual, but if you look at it, like they're not getting arrested all the time. Yeah. They're not in the emergency rooms. Right. They're not tying up ambulance care. Because yeah. once somebody gets in an ambulance, those those paramedics are tied up until they can hand them off to another doctor or yeah. someone higher than them. Right. So they end up sitting there. Uh, and like I worked in the one homeless shelter here in town and I would like, I seen this happening over and over and over again. And I said to the couple of the paramedics that I became buddies with, I was yep. like, Hey, like if I call someone in, you got to sit there with them. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, wouldn't it make more sense if I just drove them? And they're like, yeah. Like if they're healthy enough to like, they just need to go to the hospital and yep. they can walk themselves, like, get in the car, let's go. And I would drop them off. And all these paramedics were like, thank you. Yeah. Right. Like now I can attend all of these other things that are happening. Right. Like, well, it was a huge, it was a huge, uh, took a huge burden off there for a while where the lighthouse here was, was picking, picking up intoxes and taking them to back to the lighthouse. Yeah. It was like, cause before we, it was only the police that would be called and we'd pick these guys up and it's like, they're fine. They're not violent or anything. Hop in, take them to detox, but that's tying that car up and, and it's a cost. Yeah. Right. So we can reduce all these expenses through these different models that again, they're not, it, we have to go against our own morality. And sometimes it feels weird. Like, Oh, should we be giving this person access to free alcohol? 
should we? You know, and it's, and you got to get your mind out of that moral base and think. I, I had uh, I had one officer come in and you know here's a public intoxication ticket for this person that they dropped off. And I was like, why? Like, what's that doing? Well, you know, we're going to end up getting a bunch of them. Then we'll get them arrested and then we'll get them help. And I'm like, but you don't get him any help. Like you just get him arrested. Now he's tying up the system. He's doing 60 days, like in an overfull correctional, like, like it never made sense to me. Like why? Well, you know, they get one time free or whatever that year. And then the rest of the times they're getting public intoxication. Like, it, it seems so pointless to me. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, on, on some levels, it definitely is. And I think on some levels, I don't know, sometimes I think that the it's it's a matter, it's a means of showing how much this person's costing to the province and a hope that yeah, let's make some changes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's... I don't, I I don't think, know if those stats go I up. I don't know where if they they're do. supposed they to. Probably but... don't. They probably don't. But uh, this, just going back to the, to the meth scene a little bit. So obviously there's been a, there's been a drastic change from the days you were using, but back then, how were people funding? Like when you were crashing on couches, crime. like when you're crime crime. Yeah. I remember there was a couple of years, um, me and my buddy, we operated without money. We created a barter system of stolen goods yeah. and drugs. And that's how we operated. Um, sometimes our fence would like take the stolen goods and like give us money and literally buddy would just put it in the VLTs. Other than that, everything was on a barter system. Right. And by a fence, you mean someone that hold, take buy stolen property in mass quantity. Right. Right. Like you could take 20 stereos to him and he'd be like, okay. Yeah. Right. And they turn around and yeah, do whatever with it. Yeah. So when you say crime, mostly property crime, it's what funds it. Yeah. Property crime. So back then, it, when it was twenty bucks a point, you said, "What? What was the average? Either the guys you were selling to, or you yourself? What, what was the average uh, addiction worth or cost? Like, like how much were people? How much were they spending it? of meth? Like how much oh, did it cost me to um, be a meth addict back then? Th- that's the thing where it's it's a little tricky. So like, I myself, I could sit there and I could smoke all day long. Yeah. But if I got high and I had my last point and I knew I just had my last point, I would could be high all day and just on the same amount. Um, often what happened was, is you start and then uh, when you start doing things, you get obsessive, right? There's right. like the obsession. Yeah, that comes with um, meth use. So what happens to a lot of them is the smoke, the act of smoking becomes the obsession, Right. Right. So they're, they're tweaking out and what they're doing is they're tweaking out on smoking and they just smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke. Oh, and smoke, I see. Right. I remember like multiple times where I'd be like down to my last like point or two, I'd already be high. As long as I knew I had that, it's fine. Right. I could go all day without touching it because I knew I had it right. when I wanted it and it was good. Whereas I remember days where I was like, this was my tech and this yeah. is what I'm doing. And I would smoke like, half an ounce oh wow right like just obscene yeah so so that's half an ounce back then is probably worth 1500 bucks oh yeah probably (laughs) (laughs) so so some so let's say some so what would be what would be a number of like the average your average friend back in the day like how much would they be needing to accumulate to buy their uh a lot of people a half gram a day for sure was it was an average like average day Okay, so a, so a half gram back then would have cost like what? If it was 20 bucks a point, so... Well, 
50. you buy it in a half, right? So it would hundred bucks, maybe hundred bucks, 200? 80 bucks. You know, you buy it in bulk depending on the, the currency of the day. Right. I remember when it all dried up and then there was only like, we used to call it hillbilly, the hillbilly gack. Hillbilly gack yeah. yeah. There was just the hillbilly gack and they were super expensive. I would buy from them and like it was, it was costing me a hundred bucks for a half. Well, at a dealer rate. Yeah. At a dealer and, rate. And uh, so like that 150, right? Yeah. All of a sudden a half is 150. Right. But people paid it because it was good and there's nothing else. So without a job, without a job um, and any means of legit income, how do you obtain $150 worth of property crime, money? robbing from your, everyone else around you? Okay. So every, and, and that's the thing, like everyone, it's like piranhas almost, right? Like, Oh, I got this. Look what I got. You fall asleep. It's gone. It's gone. Right. And then that person, I remember, uh, we used to joke about like car stereos. Yeah. Oh, this car stereo is broken. Perfect. I can sell it twice. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that was, that was like our, our like laugh amongst ourselves. Like, Oh, yeah. good. I'll just sell it twice then. Right. Right. Cause someone's going to bring it back. This doesn't work. Yeah. And you make a deal with them and then you, the next you person comes along, you sell it to someone else. Right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Cars. Cars were a big one. Stolen cars? Uh, stealing cars, breaking into cars, just just opportunistic crime like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just getting whatever you can. Yeah, totally. Well, I noticed there, were, there used to be a peak because uh, when it was 20 bucks a point, when I first got to the drug section, it was your group still was kind of the one who kind of small. Um in, in but, but huge amounts of property crime. Huge amounts of property crime <laughs> to the point where... I when I in my fifth year, so when I was coming out of the drug section, and I I pulled a bunch of statistics, and I wrote a paper up and sent it up our chain. But I when I pulled the stats, one of the things I looked at was was seeing if there was a correlation between meth seizures and property crime going up, and there was. Oh it was yeah, very obvious. Totally. You could do it to the day. Like we did, a, we did a meth bust this day. We knew that it drove the price up a little bit because back then yeah, it yeah. wasn't as available, like you said. So then we could actually drive the price up during a decent seizure of just a few ounces even. And then then you'd look and it's like, oh, then for two week, three week period after that, property crime was through the roof. Yeah. This didn't stop people from using because it was expensive, but not that group. It just made them have to do more crimes to pay for their habit. Yeah. The big one, car stereos, computers, tools, and anything like that. Just, right. It was, was worth gold, right? Right. Watches, you, you name it, like... Right. I've got two last questions for you here. But I talked to the vice chair of the Canadian Pharmaceutical Association. We spent a lot of time talking about the role of drugs, that drugs can play, pharmaceutical drugs, and, and the, med- the med- medical system with adequate prescriptions can play in reducing uh, the opiate ep- epidemic. You know, yeah. there's, some, there's some great drugs they can prescribe, including prescription-grade heroin, if, if we eventually get there. There was nothing she could think of that they could prescribe for to help with meth. Like, is there anything that you could think of? Like, how? Where do we go from um, here with this meth epi- well, epidemic? A lot of times now you hear uh, Adderall, Adderall and Vyvanse, so yeah, prescription meth. Yeah, pretty much prescription meth right, right there. So you're not um, smoking that. You're just gonna no. You take just the take pill. them and. But I don't know if that's the solution. Like, I just no, know, not I ace. just know that that's like a pharmaceutical equivalent. Yeah. Of, um, I remember. Do you think? Do you think the scene would be open to like if somebody's decided like, hey, I'm 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 done with meth, like kind of like the the hair, like what we'd want to do with you know a prescription grade heroin, where it's just kind of limit the chaos, limit this. 
But see, with prescription grade heroin, they're getting as high, like they're getting the same effect. And then, and then we're going to try to intervene every time they come to refill their prescription. Yeah. Whereas with something like Adderall. I, I think with the, the math though is the, the problem is like you don't get physically sick like you do with the opiates. Right. Right. Like you could stop doing math and you're going to be tired and your brain's not going to work proper, but you're not, you're not, you're not like physically sick where you're like in demand of the drug. So I don't know that we'd ever get to the point where like, you know, pharmaceutical heroin or something like that would be the counterpoint for the math. Right. Right. So what do we, so what do we, what do you think the best route is if you had all the money in the world to come up with a program for, for to dealing with our meth epidemic right now, what would it be? I don't know. That's such a like tough question. <laughs> I know. I know. Like, and no one's talking about this, man. Like I'm no. talking, I've talked to so many researchers, policymakers. Nobody is talking about meth right now because opiates are the big thing. And it's, they're almost, don't I, I've go noticed there. like um, with a lot of the meth heads now, not politically correct, apparently saying meth heads, but <laughs> no. that's where I came from. So that's, those are my people. A lot of them are using it to self-medicate because you can't get Ritalin. Concert is a little weird. Yeah, good and, they're, and they're using it for their ADD or the ADHD. ADHD oh, for sure. Right? Um, yeah. Whether they realize it or not. Good point. Um, some of them do actually realize and that's what yep. they're doing. Well, I've um, seen guys calm down. I've, se- I've yeah. seen guys that say like, yeah, they do it they'll take they're... a small hit and they're super calm, cool, collected. Yeah. The problem is, is they end up taking so much that they... Yeah. And then it, it, it's like a... It's a fine line, right? Like yep. it'll work up into a point and then you just back into being ridiculous yeah, again, it's right? Unregulated yeah. shit. So yeah. so like that's very common. Um, and then part of the problem with people who go into treatment centers and to detox is they're self-medicating with the meth to deal with their mental health diagnoses and whatever, ADHD, and yeah, and then they don't have anything to balance it. So they go into a treatment, they don't have anything to balance with yeah. and they end up like, okay, what do I do now? And they get frustrated and they like leave. Right. So they're right back to self-medicating. Right. Um, concert is definitely not the answer if they're still using meth. No, it's not. <laughs> you know? It's not going to be enough to stop. Well, meth heads are really inconsistent. They do the concerta. If they don't do it regularly every day at the oh, same time, then they go on this weird emotional roller coaster and right. everything goes all wonky in their lives. And, and like, it's good if they're consistent, if they're and able stable to consistently and, take it. Yeah. Um, and then, but you give them Ritalin and then they're right back in the drug scene because right. it's a narcotic. Right. Right. So I don't know where the answer lies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need some more, more time and energy spent on that then I guess. I remember not knowing, like, I could never understand, like, okay, why are you going to give a kid Ritalin if he's hyper? Like, I never understood. And then I stopped Thumbs doing down. math. Yeah. And, and and then I, like, totally, like, all the things I used to be really good at when I was doing math, I can't do anymore. Oh, really? My brain doesn't, my brain won't function. Like, I could rip a bike apart and rebuild it in under an hour with a blindfold on. I can't, I can't, I get super frustrated, super angry. I, I just can't do it. Computers, I used to like rip them <laughs> apart, put them back together, yep. install software, do yep. all of that. Can't do it. My my brain does not allow it. Yeah, you see a lot of uh, definitely ADHD and methamphetamine use. Goes, yeah. goes I don't I don't think I was ADHD until after the math. Yeah, okay. Right? Like I don't, like I was never, I don't have a diagnosis. And I right. was never, right. I was never treated as a child for that. Yeah. But I definitely suffer from it now. Right. Interesting. Um, but they won't ever give me anything for it. 
Actually, right? you mentioned taking bikes apart. I got to ask, what is the deal with uh, every meth house we go into and everything's taken 70, apart? 72 bikes? Well, they, well, they have all the bikes for, for currency, but I, I mean, not even the bikes. I mean, like every everything. piece of electronic equipment has been taken apart and they can yeah. never figure out that, how to put it back the together. That's they get they start teching and they're really good at taking things apart, but no one's ever good at putting it back together. Right. And they just That's, get obsessed with they get to obsessive, take shit apart or yeah. Like you you get high and you become super hyper focused on this whatever the thing is. It's so like your television. I, I remember like, okay, so I'm an old punk rocker and I always yeah. have like a wallet chain or a keychain or whatever hanging yeah. from me. I remember being like, people would be like, Okay, come meet me, and I'd be like, Yeah, I'm on my way. And I would start putting keys on a ring to put it on a chain put on my belt so I could walk out the door and 23 hours would go by (laughs) and I would have bleeding fingers and I would still be obsessively putting the rings and rearranging them and like because you know how key rings can be real tight and like and and that I would just be lost in it and I remember that happening like several times and just being like oh oops (laughs) like (laughs) my phone's been ringing like just like oh okay I shouldn't have done that (laughs) right gotcha right but that's that's the mental capacity of it right like I was so hyper focused on getting this chain done right right that I did it 70,000 times and bleeding and wounded and having to bandage my hands up (laughs) jeez man okay so the very last but that's on good math (laughs) that's on good math yeah that's on bad stuff very last question. I'm I'm gonna be asking everybody this final question at the end of every podcast episode: Is addiction a healthcare issue, a criminal justice issue, or something different altogether? Healthcare, healthcare. I think it's healthcare. No I don't think criminalizing and bogging down the system as a criminal act is doing anything to help anything. Um, look at our correctional; it's overfull. They're building new wings. They're 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 still packing the gym in. Right. Um, and they're not putting a dent in it. I did like when I went in the pen, I did their addiction treatment plans and I did all of that. Yeah. It's not worse worse shit. Like I got out, I lasted a few days, I got high, right? Right. Um I think it has to be in the realm of healthcare. Okay. Do you think you need these? Do you do you think there's people that need these negative consequences, including the police arrest and going to jail all the time? to hit a point where they have this realization like this is enough or no? I think in some cases that might be the case. I know for me, like certainly I hit a point where I got arrested for a bunch of property crime stuff and I stopped doing property crime. Okay. Right. But that didn't stop my addiction. Right. I just went back to drug dealing. Right. Right. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. So, so I think that's, I I don't think addiction, we're going to put a dent in anything by not, decriminalizing and and approaching it as a a healthcare perspective. But I also don't think that court ordering people to go to treatment and stuff is really helpful either. Because they're not ready themselves. They're not ready. Yeah. If we presented it as a choice, like here you go, you got arrested for this. You can go to treatment or you can go here. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to go to treatment. Of course. Okay. We'll go to treatment. And then if the third time it doesn't work, then then you go here, right? right? Like right. maybe something like that. Uh, I don't know. I'm right. not. I'm not a professional. At it. <laughs> well, you're an expert, man. You are an expert. Thank, you know what, Keith? Thank you for spending some time with me. Um, no problem. I know. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing some more work with you through our Say No program. I really appreciate you using your experience to help people from all walks of life right now. Yeah. It feels good awesome. to make use of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and you are. So yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time with me. Thank you.
In next week's episode, in two weeks from now, I speak with Dr. Daryl Gebbian. Dr. Gebbian made headlines in Ontario when he was a doctor that was convicted of trafficking fentanyl and served some time in jail. More importantly, though, he does talk about his story and where things went wrong, but he comes up with some incredible suggestions and uh, he's created a model that he believes will get our country out of the opiate crisis. So don't miss that episode. It's definitely a very interesting discussion that we have. As always, I just want to thank DJ Charlie Hustle for donating the intro and outro music to our podcast. Check out his incredible music at charliehustlemusic.com. He's the 2015 Canadian Red Bull champion.